I'm Adrian Jones, and this is Profound Awesomeness. Rock climbing enthusiast and free soloer Melinda Walker had several close calls before she experienced the fall of her lifetime in a remote part of Kenya, hours away from critical care in Nairobi. Hear her gripping story of how she made it from lying in severe pain at the base of a Chassis rock band in the middle of a scree field to navigating Kenyan roads in search of hospitals to her eventual return to the U.S. Learn how this fall led her to new awareness and amazing life circumstances that she wouldn't trade for anything, and she couldn't be happier now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Profound Awesomeness. We're in season two. This will be our second episode in this season, and I'm excited to be joined by our guest today, Melinda Walker. Uh, you? I'm doing well. That's great to hear. That is great to hear. Where uh, Where are you right now? I'm in Boulder, Colorado, trying to survive two young infants. <laughs> yeah, you have two young infants, so they they could potentially become part of this podcast. We'll see how they do. Right? They may join any minute. Who knows? <laughs> uh, we love the little ones around here, so that won't be a problem. So you've got quite a story to tell, um, and I'm really interested to dive into it and 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 be able to share your story with our listeners. I think you know what I always like to do is to start off by getting to know our guests and you know, where they're from, where where they grew up, what makes them them, what makes them unique, and so forth. So why don't you just sort of throw a softball pitch here for you and and sort of say ask you tell us about yourself. Well, um, I grew up in Texas and um, just a little suburb right out of Dallas and. Not much happening um, out there. Always my parents would take us to Colorado and we'd visit and go hiking and skiing and climbing. And I really got into rock climbing down in Texas, but it was on plastic and um, always had an idea in my mind that I wanted to end up in Colorado, although it seemed unattainable. But um, as I grew up, um, I loved just the outdoors and um, went to school uh, in Texas Christian University down in Fort Worth and then made my way to um, law school and ended up in Houston, still stayed in Texas. And I got the opportunity right um, outside of law school when I graduated to move to Colorado in a little town um, of Durango and when, didn't even take the Texas bar, just decided to take the Colorado bar and moved to Colorado and decided to become a climbing bum, but, um, and not use my law degree at all, which my parents weren't exactly, um, too fond of, but I decided to really focus in on climbing and, and enjoying life and, um, playing in the outdoors. And then eventually I decided to grow up and get a job and got into the renewable energy field and worked for the Department of Energy for a while and um, was a contract worker there and ultimately decided um, to take a hiatus and go travel the world for a year. And, you know, basically one of the things that I found about myself that, that there's two kind of passions in my life. And one is traveling traveling and seeing new things. And the other one is rock climbing. And so a lot of my yeah. travel, um, surrounded, 
you know, by rock climbing and going different places and you stayed in Yosemite for a month and, you know, just climbing out there and um, then went to New Zealand and went, you know, actually doing a travel program with kids out there and just kind of, you know, loving life and loving the adventure. And so kind of, you know, about me, I, I have a younger sister and an older brother and, you know, all of our family moved out of Texas and my poor parents were like, why doesn't anyone live here? And we're like, well, cause it's Texas, but <laughs> so where do your other siblings live? Um, one lives, well, they both live in Nevada. So um, okay. one lives in Reno and one lives in Carson. So um, my parents are always out visiting and they stayed in Texas. So, um, so I'd love to go back to, to use a, your term, a climbing bum. So what did you do? You just, you didn't have a job and just climbed and uh, well, like I had a quasi and, job. Um, uh-huh. My boyfriend and I at the time were building a house um, for his brother, and so they were paying us to build. But we'd basically work maybe ten hours a week and then go camping and live out of a van and go climbing the rest of the week. And so we were mostly in Utah and in Colorado, and just you know we'd go and hike twenty miles in and camp somewhere and climb somewhere for like two, three days and then come back. Um, it was quite amazing and fun. And, you know, just, it, it was like a, a way to live life that had no cares. And, and I, at the time I didn't have any bills to pay, didn't have a family. Um, but you know, there was part of me, you know, that wanted something more. And, um, I knew that being a climbing, what a quote unquote bum, wasn't a way to live your entire life, but it was a, a great experience for me in the time being, um, just to kind of get to know myself and um, also get to know that there was something else missing um, in my life. So, but um, it was, I was happy doing it while I was doing it. And what was one of your greatest adventures while you were a climbing bum or memories? Well, probably doing a canyon called Sandthrax, which should automatically be a clue not to do. Um, it was, um, I've always been a climber and canyoneering is not climbing, but you utilize a lot of the same skills. And thus me being a great climber, I was like, oh, what canyoneering, this has got to be easy. Um, it's more, you know, climbing a lot of times you're just climbing up something and coming down unless you're doing like big walls that are a lot more adventurous or multi-pitching is what they call it. But, you know, a lot of times climbing is, is pretty straightforward, easygoing. Um, we were looking for more of an adventure this time around. It was, um, my best friends, um, they just got married and they were having, um, their honeymoon. And so we're like, let's go canyoneering, even though none of us have been canyoneering ever in our lives. And we went canyoneering and we decided this canyon called Tantharax, which was rated like three R or three X something, something was basically the, one of the hardest canyons in Utah and like expert, expert canyoneers. We got way over our head and (laughs) basically faced death the entire time. And I've never been more scared in my life and more happy and thrilled to be out of the canyon once we got through it 12 hours later. Um, so, How'd you almost die? Well, um, so basically what you're doing is you're stemming um, between two walls. The canyon, it's a slot canyon, so it's really narrow. And so your your back is on one wall and your legs are on the other wall. And so you're 
kind of scooching through the canyon. But below this canyon, below our feet is about a hundred foot drop off. Um, so you don't want to slip at all at any no. time because you basically will get wedged into like a V, but it, the bottom is really far down. And thus, um, we underestimated the the length of the canyon, the skill of the canyon, and realized we are not, you know, invincible. And one of my friends at the actually the guy who just got married, he did slip, but caught himself with his head on the other side and upside down. And it was quite scary at that time. And so once we had made it through the canyon, I had told myself it didn't matter how much money someone would pay me. I would never go back in that canyon. But the adventure loving me, you know, always wanted to go climbing. And so we had plenty more adventures after that that didn't stop me. But that was a, a crazy climb or a crazy canyon to do. Wow, that sounds absolutely terrifying. So some of my adventures have been probably stuff that I shouldn't have done. Um, I got lucky several times and to not die. And, you know, that kind of leads me to my Africa story of learning that I really am not invincible in, in a change of life. So, yeah. And we're going to get to Africa in a second. And, and that is a big turning point for you. Uh, I'm just curious. Did you see the movie Free Solo? Yes. And I've actually met Alex Honnold. Oh, you have? Yes. Oh, wow. What was that like? Oh, he, he's a crazy climber. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> um, that, I mean, honestly, that's stuff I would do. I, I'd free solo a lot while I was climbing. Um, my boyfriend at the time, he was a really big free soloer. And wow. it was just a way of life. And, you know, you didn't really, you didn't have anyone besides yourself to take care of. And, you know, some of it is a little bit, you know, I wouldn't say it's irresponsible because, I mean, there's, a part of it that you get really in tune with life and the fragility of life and how precious life is. But it's also a little bit selfish in the fact that, you know, you're, you're putting your life at risk and you could die at any minute. And there's a lot of people, loved ones that you will miss you a lot if you make that one slip. So I guess I've met high risk. You've met Alex. That's, oh, that's really cool. That must have been great to meet him. And I didn't realize you were a soloer as well. So I'm not anymore, but not, not anymore. Okay. Yes. So you mentioned Africa. What got you over to Africa? And when well, this, was that? And this how is part old of, I took that year off and uh -huh. um, halfway through or three quarters of the way, um, I've always wanted to go to Africa. There's, like I said, I, I love to travel and love seeing, seeing new cultures and helping people. And so I decided to go over there and volunteer in Kenya and work with the Maasai tribe. And my main, my main focus was to um, be a teacher at one of their schools because they really they may have like one teacher for 50 kids. And that one teacher, I mean, is like a generalist teacher that teaches everything from kindergarten to eighth grade, you know, but so they're, they're in desperate need of help with their education system. And so they often rely on volunteers to go over there and help um, supplement the lack of teaching and the lack of really curriculum or anything. And I'm not a teacher, but I thought, well, I mean, I graduated law school. I'm sure I could at least help. 
um, in some fashion or form. So I went over there to volunteer. And while I was there, I saw a greater need that beyond just them having an education, they didn't have any food to eat. Um, so these children would go to school at seven o'clock in the morning and leave at four or five and not have anything to eat during the entire day. And my thoughts were, well, how can kids learn at all when they're starving and they're hungry? So uh, my family and my church, we raised um, funds and we built them a farm while I was over there. And it was about a three acre farm where we planted an acre of corn and an acre of beans and an acre of potatoes. And a lot of it was getting in the land plowed and they have land over there. But one of the also um, problems is they don't have a, a like a sustainable water source. They rely upon the, you know, monsoon season and the rains. But beyond that, they'd have to travel, you know, several hours to get to water. But, you know, the area once it so their their farming season is very short and there's two of them, one in the spring and one in the fall. But at least it was a method that, you know, while I was there, you know, because I was there a couple months, I got to see them plant. I got to see them grow and harvest and kids were eating food at lunchtime. And it was really dear to my heart and really felt good to be part of a community and help. Um, this is a very uh, remote area of Kenya. It's about, I want to say, six hour drive from. Um, Nairobi without traffic, but it's really in the middle of nowhere. The nearest town was a town called Gong, and that's where the road ends. And then you have like this basically dirt path that motorcycles or some cars can get to, but the road is exceptionally bumpy. You drive that another couple hours and you get really into the middle of nowhere where people live still in mud huts and there's no electricity. There's, like I said, no running water. And, you know, that's where they live and, and that's their community. And so I was out there um, for quite a while and really enjoyed my time while I was there. Wow. And what year are we talking about right now? This is 2014. 2014. And you were roughly, you were how old then? 30 years old. 30 years old. And how did you find this particular location? Um, actually, it was just, I knew I wanted to volunteer in Kenya. And so I just you know, actually did a Google search and found a volunteer organization that needed help. So it was it was that simple, pretty much. Uh, there's a lot of them out there that, you know, need help. And, you know, it was quite affordable for me to go over there. I think for two months time, I spent 500 bucks. So I was also a broke, like I said, I was a climbing bum beforehand. So I didn't have a lot of money, <laughs> but I had a lot of heart. So I wanted to help people and, you know, it was it was a perfect fit for me. So your your goal was to be there for two months. That I was going to be there for three months, but I had a, I had a little bit of an accident on your month two. Month two, your trip was cut a little short. Correct. Uh, so, give us the story there. What happened to cut your trip short? Well, me being me, um, I got bored one day after school. And there was a rock band right behind the school. And I was there with another volunteer. He was 18 years old. And so, and not a musical group. We're not talking about a musical group, rock band. No, no, no. Like a, 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 basically a, a rock 
wall, but it right. wasn't that tall. It right. was probably maybe 30 feet tall um, and stretched, you know, like maybe a hundred yards or something like that. And, you know, I've, I've been staring at this thing for the last two months and being like, Hey, we should go climb it sometime. And it was always the joke because I hadn't climbed in several months and I was getting that itch like, Oh my goodness, I got to go do something. Um, but you know, it, it's a choss pile. It's probably not something you should be climbing, but we were bored one day after, um, school had ended and the kids left and, um, cause you, in order to get to where I was staying, it was a 40 minute walk one way. And, you know, we're like, well, let's just stay here for a little bit and maybe go check out that rock band. And so we hiked up there, which was maybe like a 20 minute hike from the school. And, um, he's like, oh, we could climb this easily. And he's not a climber. He's never climbed like a day in his life. And I was like, eh, I don't know. This is pretty chossy, which meaning the rock is crumbly and, loose and really shouldn't climb it um not good quality but he scrambles right up it and me being the actual like what i quote unquote i'm the climber and my ego got in the way and like well if this 18 year old can climb who's never climbed a day in his life i certainly can climb up it it was not hard climbing i mean like it was pretty much almost like a ladder um it significantly easier than anything I've ever climbed. But like I said, it was loose rock. And that's the thing that's the most deadly out of any um, rock. You, I mean, it'd be better that the rock was harder, but stable. Because um, then you can rely upon the handholds that you're holding. So I climb up, I get to the top. I'm actually on the ledge where my hand is just on a, a what they would call a flake. Um, but both my hands were on this. I was maybe six inches from the top and talking to him like he was, he, you know, the other volunteer, his name was Arno. And he was, you know, a foot away from me and we were just chatting and I was about to get onto the top when all of a sudden the rock I was on, um, my handhold broke off. And at that moment, I mean, I knew I was pretty far up and I knew the, con you know, the consequences of falling off of this because, my, you know, everything in me at before I climbed was saying, don't climb this. This is not worth it. This is this is horrible climb. Like, why would you risk yourself but for doing this? And at that moment when that rock um, broke, I did like my whole entire life flashed before my eyes. I the only thought that crossed my mind was I'm dead. Like the it was not good. And I don't remember hitting the ground. I don't remember. I just remembered the rock breaking and, and starting the fall, the initial fall. I don't remember hitting, but I do remember rolling a lot because there was basically like a 90 degree scree field down below the rock band. And so I remember rolling and I remember hitting a bush. I don't remember any pain at that moment or anything, but I, once I stopped, that bush stopped me from rolling, continuously rolling I realized it was still alive, which was good, but my eyes were closed and I just laid there for a moment, just like not wanting to move, not wanting to acknowledge like what had just happened. And, um, you know, like eventually I mustered the courage to open my eyes and, and see what had happened. And my arm was barely mangled, um, in a very, unhumanly manner where I had, it was just 
distorted completely and um, severely broken. And at the time, I was uh, trying to think, well, that's good because maybe I'm just broke my arm and all that. That's something I could survive. And so I was just laying there as um, the other volunteers with had was running down. Like there's a you could easily on the backside of the rock just walk off. And he was running down to me and he said, you know, when he got to me that I was just basically tumbled like a rag doll down and that he was for certain that he was running to someone who's dead. And but he was ecstatic that I was still alive. And at that moment, I was just in utter shock. And like I, like I said, I had no pain. I had um, just trying to acknowledge what had just happened and so he's like, well, we, we need to get you to the hospital, like immediately. And or he, you know, took off his shirt and wrapped my arm trying to, you know, make a makeshift, you know, sling for it. And he's like, I'm going to go get some help, you know, just stay here. What seemed like an eternity, he returned. He found some goat herders because um, at that time, um, now everyone had left the school because this was like maybe an hour and a half later. And, um, but there was some goat herders that they ran to go get someone else who ran to go get someone else. And about an hour later, after the initial fall, um, the people I was staying with were, were there and there is no cell phone reception out here. There's, there's no cars out here. And so some of, I was starting to get some severe pain at this point. And at first, like I said, I was in shock. But now that shock was starting to wear off and the realization is like, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, we need to get a helicopter. I need to, I need to get out of here. This, this is, I'm like the more pain than just my arm. And my arm was like severely mangled. And I was like, I need to get out of here now. And, you know, they kept looking at me and I'm like, there's nothing we, there's no, there's no one coming for you. We have to get out ourselves. And the realization is like, you know, not being in America where you can just call, you know, search and rescue and someone's going to come and get you. It's like, if I don't help myself, if I don't try to get out of here myself and with the people that I'm with, no one's coming. Like, it's either you you do it or you don't. And so, um, you know, the group of people I was with had they they got me up and that was when. I had, I'd been laying this entire time. And that's when I first acknowledged that there was something way more wrong with me than just my arm. Cause they tried to pick me up and it, there was some severe, severe pain all in my pelvic area. Um, at the time I did not realize, but I had shattered my entire pelvis and it, right next to my, um, my, some of my main arteries and the doctor's like, you should not walk <laughs> with that broken pelvis. Cause you could have, you know, basically severed your femoral artery and, and bled out and died in five minutes. But I, like I said, no one's coming to help me. There's no gurney coming. There's no, there's nothing there. So it's either you get out, you get moving, pray to God that, you know, something doesn't happen. So they got me down to the road, which I don't know how long it was. It seemed like a, a, an eternity to get there, but they had also sent someone to the next town um, to go get, a car. So they sent a runner and someone ran to the next town. So I was probably there for several hours at the road waiting, um, waiting just to, to get 
anything. Like there wasn't, like I said, no cell phone. So we couldn't figure out what timing anything was. And the pain was continuously growing more and more and more and more. And I just was like, please, someone give me some, some drugs. And no one has any drug. No one has um, anything out there. And so finally, which was someone else had told me, it was about three to four hours later, a car arrived to come get me. And um, so they put me in the back of like a, like a Sudan um, that was probably, you know, 60 years old. And um, the entire family that I was staying with was, was wanting to ride with me. So they crammed everyone in like sardines. Instead of me like laying down, there was like six people in the backseat with me. And, um, of course the one person who I wanted was the volunteer. Um, he was there with me and we started to make our way on the most bumpy road that I could ever imagine, um, down to the town, um, which they kept, you know, telling me there's a hospital there, there's a hospital there, you're going to get help. And so like my hope was like, okay, I'll get to the, the town, get to a hospital, I'll get taken care of. Maybe they'll, you know, you know, get a helicopter, fly me out. You know, I, I can make it to the town because I knew on a normal day, it's about an hour drive um, from where I was at to the town. And I was I just as long as I can just make it there, I'll be OK. And um, but it was like the worst bumpy road ever. And I could feel for every bump that they had, I could feel like my bones inside me just moving and crunching. And and it was the most excruciating pain at this point. And I, I mean, I, I actually threw up at one point because I was not in a good place. And um, the guy I was with had to slap me a couple times because I was starting to pass out. Um, so the pain was really, really bad. But about three-fourths of the way there, unfortunately, the car that we were in broke down and they had to go get another car. So then we had to wait another hour for them to go run and get another car. Then I got into that other car. We finally made it to the town gong. Um, that was, you know, maybe a town of 5,000 people. And they're like getting me to what they, they called the hospital, but it was actually an AIDS clinic um, that had no capability of taking care of any trauma. Um, they didn't have any, you know, any gurneys. They had no wheelchairs. They had no, no medicine, no nothing. Um, they did have some Advil. So they gave me three Advil, which did not do anything. Um, but uh, at that point, there was at least cell phone reception. Um, we called or the other volunteer called the um, volunteer organization I was with. And they set in motion getting to me a um, ambulance that would come down from Nairobi. They said it'd be there in about two to three hours, and then it would take another two to three hours to get back to Nairobi. Um, I was like, well, where's the, uh, you know, a helicopter? And they're like, oh, there's no helicopters. And, and you know, there, there's there's no way to do that. I mean, unless you have like $30,000 of cash on you right now. And I'm like, well, someone will get that. But, you know, it, it just wasn't an option. Um, and I wasn't really in the right mind to, to try and argue with, you know, getting faster help. So we stayed there for a while. The so now my thought was, okay, okay, at least I can I can make it to the ambulance, and the ambulance will have you know what I thought would be a paramedic, 
and there'd be medicine on board and they could take care of me and I can start, you know, getting better or not getting worse. Cause I, you know, at this point I'm bleeding, I'm, you know, losing a lot of blood and, you know, not in a, not in a good mindset or headspace. And eventually the ambulance did come, which seemed like an eternity. And it wasn't really an ambulance. It was more of a van with a, um, a gurney in the back. There was nobody to be in the back. There was not even a strap on the gurney. There was no medicine. There was no painkillers. And I think I, at that point, I kind of started losing it. Like I was just losing my hope because I, I was in a very, very bad place at that point. Um, and at, on our hospital or our drive to the hospital, um, I was given a phone and, um, it was at that time, like I just was going to, I called my parents and, you know, it was just saying, you know, like, Hey mom, dad, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay, but not okay. Um, trying to get to a hospital. I fell off a cliff climbing and this might be the last time I talk to you. Um, which is hard to make a call like that. And so, um, I talked to my parents and of course my parents now were, they had no idea what was going on at the time. And now they're freaking out. They're calling the embassy. They're calling, um, like, like search and rescue type of people. They're, they're making a lot more. They're calling, I had, um, travel insurance and they're calling them. So they're kind of setting in motion a lot of things, um, but I didn't have very good cell phone reception, so it was a, about a five-minute call. And um, so we, we drove to the, the nearest hospital. Um, I'm glad I survived the ambulance drive because there was a lot of uh, traffic getting into Nairobi. And instead of driving on the roads, um, the ambulance driver decided to drive on the sidewalks and honking up people to get people out of the sidewalks. So at least we didn't kill anybody getting there or ourselves. Um, once we got to the nearest hospital, which was the government run hospital, um, it's unfortunate that they have a, you know, the government run hospital, which is where all the, the people who live in Kenya or native Kenyans go. And then there's a white person hospital and they call it the white person hospital, but it was another hour and a half drive. And unfortunately, um, how the structure is over there, you know, the people who are poor go to the government run hospital and the people who have money go to the white people hospital, but I couldn't make it to the white people hospital and, um, got to see firsthand on, you know, what kind of medical care is given to people, you know, who, who don't, who aren't as fortunate. And it's very sad that they're not given really much of a chance, um, or given the proper medical care. Um, once I got to the government run hospital, um, before they would even let me in the door, they asked me for $4,000 cash. And I'm like, I don't have $4,000 cash on me. Um, the volunteer program I was with had met me at the hospital. They paid for me to get in there. Um, my parents had, you know, wire transferred money later that day to them. But um, that's also very sad because a lot of people don't get the medical care that they need because they don't have the money. So they're just turned away. Um, so it's like just not a great system over there, which is really heartbreaking. Um, I'm very fortunate because I did have money and, you know, I'm 
a different color skin. So they're like more apt to take care of me, um, which is also unfortunate because, you know, everyone should get equal care. And so I got there. They finally gave me some pain pills or pain medicine in an IV. And um, I waited another while because I was like, what? what's taking so long? They're like, well, the only doctor that they had was delivering babies at the time. And I'm like, I don't need a OBGYN doctor. I need an orthopedic surgeon or ER surgeon. And they're like, oh, well, he does everything. And I'm like, I don't want someone who does everything. I want a specialist. Um, they're like, oh, he's good at everything, they kept telling me. Uh, so I once he finally got to me, um, they were giving me general anesthesia drugs, um, putting me under. And I remember the last thing the surgeon said to me is, well, we're hoping to save you. Um, we're not sure if we're going to be able to save your arm. Um, there's about a 50% chance that you're not going to have an arm when you, if you wake up. And he used the word, if you wake up. And that was the last thing I remember hearing before I went under. And I don't know how long I was out. I don't know what happened, transpired. But I did wake up. And I did have an arm still. And I was really fortunate and blessed for that. Um, but again, this hospital didn't have really the medical care or necessities. They didn't have any IV fluid. Um, so usually after surgery, they give you lots of fluids because you need it. You're dehydrated and I've lost a lot of blood. And so they didn't have really any of the care that they, you would normally get. They also didn't have normal painkiller pills. So they gave me, um, opium, um, instead of like, you know, morphine or Dilaudin because that's what they had. And so it was really good stuff. I have to say that, though, because once they gave me that, I was like, oh, my God, life is so good. Things it, got really groovy with the opium. Oh, I, I mean, at this point, I had called my parents. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I'm fine. I'm doing just great. And they're like, what's wrong with you? We're sending you like you're getting medically evacuated. I'm like, no, I still have to go see the gorillas. And I was they said I was really out of it. I don't really remember these calls with my parents, but apparently I was arguing with them to stay. And they're like, no, we're sending you, you're getting medically evacuated out of Africa. You're not staying. But then when the drugs wore off and, and all the pain would flood back in, I was like, get me out of here. I got, I'm dying over here. Um, at some point, I went into a coma while I was there. And um, I don't really remember getting on the air ambulance. Um, I woke up at some point on an air ambulance and it was a crew from England. And then it was a 27 hour flight. You know, they had given me all the proper medications and everything else. Um, the hospital in Africa did not have an x-ray machine, so they didn't really know what was broken in on broken on me. Um, they just they could see what you know what was broken, but they didn't realize that I had a lot of other things broken on me. Um, so you know they, the air ambulance took care of me. Um, I got flown back to Texas where, where my parents were um, so because they knew that it was going to be a long recovery. And and so I ended up flying to Dallas, um, got a helicopter from the airport. So I had a helicopter in Dallas um, um, when I really didn't need it um, to the hospital. And then they did. They performed another emergency surgery on me. 
And that's when they, you know, did a CAT scan and everything else, all your, what you would normally expect to, you know, be taken care of. And they realized I had shattered my pelvic ring and shattered areas of, had hairline fractures all over my pelvis. And so then I had uh, another surgery like a couple days later after that. And I was in the hospital for about three weeks. And then I was released to a rehab center for a month. And then I was released to my parents' home. And all of all of that um, for just going on a quick little climb right after school um, wasn't quite worth it, I have to say. Um, but I was very thankful to be alive, um, very thankful to have a family that was supportive of me, um, very, very thankful that I had, you know, the opportunity to get care. And, you know, just counting my blessings. And so the initial thoughts were like how blessed I was, but it did transition into more anger and like, why did this happen to me? And, you know, it it was not a quick recovery. Um, I had to have an additional like six surgeries on my arm. And every time I'd go into the orthopedic surgeon and he'd be like, well, no, we have to do this. No, no, we have to do this. And it just, it seemed like it was endless. It was, I stayed at my parents' house for a year and a half after that, because I was in a wheelchair for six months and I couldn't use my arm that I'm right-handed and I broke, I shattered everything in my right hand. So what I ultimately did is I dislocated my shoulder. I snapped my um, humerus in half I shattered my radius um, in my elbow and I broke my wrist. And so it was just one surgery after another, after another. And it just, there was no end in sight. And um, I had a lot of, you know, anger and a lot, I think I was also, I was on a lot of drugs throughout this entire time and taking out my frustration on my family. And, you know, of course my family's there super supportive and loving and, they just took it and they're like, we just love you. And we know this is not you. Um, so it was a very, very long road to recovery. But eventually I did recover. And eventually after, you know, staying with my parents, I moved back to Colorado where, you know, was my home. And I moved to the front range at that time and took a new job and decided I was, I was going to have a different path in life. And um, got a job with a solar company, being a lawyer, actually. And, you know, just decided a lot of things need to change. And, um, you know, what I needed to focus in on, you know, was, you know, different than the the fun-loving climbing, like no cares in the world. And, you know, I realized I do have cares. And I, I realized that, you know, there was more to life than climbing. It was... During this whole ordeal, you know, I had a was with a, a guy for six years and he was a climbing bum, too. And uh, I realized during this whole ordeal that him and I were not meant to be together and that what I ultimately always wanted and just kind of had tucked away because it wasn't what he wanted was, you know, I wanted to eventually have a family and I wanted to have kids. I wanted to be married and all these things, you know, I'm now at this point, like 33, because it was a year and a half later, um, that was the realization. I was like, I was going down a path that wasn't really me. And, you know, I had a lot of fun doing it, 
but there was more important things that I was pushing aside because I wanted to have some temporary fun instead of what I really wanted. Um, so after my recovery, it was more of self-reflection and, and thought about what I wanted, who I wanted to be, and realizing I wasn't any of those things. And so I ultimately broke up with this guy um, who I cared very much about. And, you know, I have no ill will for him. And he's just and he's still doing the same thing today. He's he's not married, climbing every almost every day. And, you know, that that's the path. That's the life he chose. And um, had it not been for this accident, I may have been down that same path. Um, I'm in a very different path now. I'm married and have two wonderful children that I would give up the whole world for and I would be missing a missing part of my soul if I hadn't had these children and hadn't had this new life and kind of the realization in the wake-up call was this fall and was going through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain Um, but I think one of the things that I've realized with this is you know what's really important. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, family, friends, and the experiences you have with them. And I was missing that family element. And so I really was like, okay, I want to eventually have that family. And, you know, so that's what I put my mind to. And, you know, move, like I said, I moved back to Denver and um, just, you know, got a real job and ultimately I was still going to climb and climbing was always a, a big part of my life and still will be a big part of my life. I still climb today. Um, so, but no, nothing crazy like I used to be. I, I've definitely, um, not a risk taker anymore, not being like, oh, well, if something happens to me, no big deal. And like I said, it's part of it is the mindset is a little bit selfish, mainly because it's, it is a big deal because I saw how much pain I put my parents through and they don't deserve that. Um, they, you know, they, they only want their best for their kids and that's what I want for mine and how much hurt it, you know, would have been had I died that day, you know, and they would have just been devastated. And I saw all that and I felt all that and that temporary climb, no climb's worth dying for. Like nothing, nothing's worth dying for like that. So, but I still like, like I said, I love to climb and, um, you know, I joined another climbing gym and was getting back into climbing, even though I had a crazy bum arm, I I don't have all my, um, flexibility I used to or range of motion, but I could still climb. And that made me so ecstatic. Will I ever climb like I, as hard as I used to? Absolutely not. But I could climb. So, um, I met, uh, when one day I was at this rock climbing gym by myself and this guy came over to me and he had a bum arm like me. And I was like, Oh my goodness, we have the same kind of scars, which are crazy scars all the way down your arm. And him and I struck up a, a really good friendship and he was getting his PhD in Canada and he was down here for six month hiatus. And we were climbing quite regularly together and, Um, He was about to move back to Canada to finish um, his dissertation. And 
you know, he's like, hey, Melinda, can you come climbing with me one last time? And I was like, oh, I don't really want to climb. I'm tired today. I had a long day at work. Um, I just wasn't feeling it. But he, I knew it was his last day. And, you know, we had, you know, it was a really good friendship. So I went to the climbing gym with him. Had it not been for him, I would not be at the climbing gym that day. And that was the day that I got to meet my my future husband. And which was really cool because I I believe that had I not ever fallen off this cliff, I never would be at that climbing gym that day. And he never climbs at this climbing gym. He just happened to be there that one day. And so, you know, like the guy I was with, my friend, was talking to him and struck up a, a conversation about some climb they were climbing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's so cute. <laughs> um I don't know. I just was fell head over heels. Like I, I think that they they say that there's love at first sight. I do believe it because I was just there's something about this guy. And you know, at the end of the day, he gave me his number, and I called it the next day. And the rest is history. Um, we got married. We now have two beautiful children, a little boy and a little girl, and could not be happier. And you know, what I found is this. Also, sometimes it's the, the pain and the struggle that you go through that makes the good times so much better. And, you know, if everything was always good, you wouldn't realize how good you have it. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that sometimes it, it takes something happening to you for your eyes to be open to how much, how amazing life is, how good things are what you really want, what you really want to focus on. Cause you know, we, we just get into a routine and we do the same thing day to day. And, you know, I think having a, a life altering experience and almost dying really helps shape me who I am today and focus on the important things. And so I changed so much that day and what I view as I changed it all for the good and, and, just kind of develop the person who I am today and I'm couldn't be happier. And, you know, well, am I a, like a crazy strong climber anymore? No, but there's so much more to life than that. And that's what I realized is that it's not just the next climb and having a temporary fun. I will have an amazing life and I so look forward to raising two children and eventually them climbing. Um, I hope they never go crazy. And never do the things I did. But um, like I, I want to have these experiences with them. And um, like I said, it, it took this experience for me to realize what I wanted and to go after what I wanted. And eventually I got what I wanted and I, I couldn't be happier. That's so great. that's a long story short. <laughs> well, that's quite a story. Uh, and and it's gripping uh, the way you share it. In some ways, and this is going to seem like a ridiculous question, but in some ways, are you grateful? I mean, based just listening on your most recent comments, are you gr- grateful in some strange, absurd way that you had the accident? Yes. Has it led you down this path? Not, it's hard. It's like, it's like not in the time that it happened. Right. But now I'm grateful because uh, I, I really feel like I was not going down a healthy path and it was, I was not following what I really wanted and I needed a wake up call. And that wake up call was a big wake up call for me, but I needed a wake up call to be like, Melinda, 
what are you doing? This is not what you want to do. And ultimately, I, I credit this fall for meeting my husband. I wouldn't have been at the climbing gym. I wouldn't have met the, the guy who had the crazy arm scar because that's how we connected is because he came over to me and was like, oh, how what did you do to your arm? Um, so in an odd sense, I'm grateful for the fall because it helped me mold me who I am today. It helped me realize what I want and it helped me um, just, you know, take that appreciation that I wasn't taking the appreciation for life and the gratitude for all the good things that happen and the joy that we have um, because the sorrow really sucks and the pain really sucks and everyone goes through something. Everyone goes through things that are, are heart hurtful. You know, we lose loved ones. We, you know, have physical elements. We, you know, someone dies from cancer. There's always something in everyone's life that people go through pain and, and sorrow And I think that what ultimately I learned is that either you can let that eat you up and you can become bitter and, you know, just hating life, or you can learn from that experience and you can become better and grow. And we don't always understand why things happen. And, you know, and we may never understand why something happens to us or or our loved one. But you can grow from that and grow from that experience and just cherish every minute you have of this life because you don't know when that last moment will be. No, no, you certainly don't. That's well articulated. Going back to that long journey to Nairobi from your fall site, it sounded like you were drifting and you weren't sure you were going to make it when you made that difficult call to your parents. Um, was there part of you that was thinking up, fight through this fight, 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 stay, stay awake, stay alert. Did you have those thoughts going? Absolutely. Like I just was like, I, I, I gotta survive. I, I, I mean, like I said, I did not want to do that to my parents. Right. Um, right before I even left to go to Africa, I jokingly said, hey, dad, I might die in Africa and, you know, or something like a line might eat me or, you know, something like that. And he's like, Melinda, don't joke about those things. And I was like, dad, stop being so serious. But that actual thought, that was one of the last conversations we had um, when I was, you know, just I think the next day I went to the airport. They took me to the airport. Um and I was like, I don't want that to be my last conversation with my dad. I was joking around about dying and then actually dying. Um, no, I mean, I was in a really bad shape. And I did think I was going to die. And I was just like, I, I, I muster any, anything I have in me to not die. And to just, you know, keep going. And I had a lot I wanted to do in my life. And this is not, this is not how it's supposed to end. This is not how... Um, you know, I'm supposed to, you know, die, at least in my mind. (laughs) And I was like, I got to just keep trying and keep pushing. And at some point, it's like either you, I think in when you're in like severe pain and something has happened to you, you either can choose to try and muster any energy you have to survive and do whatever you can do to survive, or you give up. 
um, and just let, and it's easy to do that, to just let, let it happen. And, and, but sometimes, I mean, it, it, it was very difficult, I have to say. Um, but I did think I was going to die. And I, you know, I have to say, I, I prayed a lot <laughs> during that time. Um, I, I find myself that, you know, you're, you pray when you need God or something, you know, whatever, whoever you believe in. But I, I definitely prayed a lot during that. It was took about 12 hours to get to the hospital and just asking, please give me one more chance. Like, I just, I just need, you know, give me whatever strength you have. Just let me get through this. And so I did, thankfully. Well, thankfully, absolutely. Uh, and then going back to your, the climb itself on the rock band, and you're almost at the top, and then the rock comes loose, and you fall, and you said, I think I'm going to die, or something like that. From the time you fell to the time you came to rest at the bush, did you have any other thoughts, or was it merely just like... I, it's almost like a, I, I saw my life just flash before my yeah. eyes. Like, mm. I saw images. It, it wasn't like necessarily words, but it was just images of like my mom, my dad, my dog, my friends, my family, me being a kid. Like it, it was just, mm. it was really wow. odd where I just like almost saw my life, just the whole story of my life go right within like seconds, just flash. Um, and so I, I did, I, I literally, as the rock was breaking, the thought was, oh, my God, I just died. And then it was just the images. And then I just remember tumbling, like I said. And, and then, it, then I stopped at some point when the bush caught me. But um, so I, I do did see my life really flash before my eyes. And like all the things, you know, it was just really weird seeing me as a kid, like in these different images of like me playing with my my family and my friends and yeah. things of that sort. Yeah. Fascinating. And you didn't land on the ground. You, I think you said you landed on scree. Is that what you said? Yeah. So, I, I mean, what, I mean, of course this is secondhand knowledge. I don't, you don't, I don't remember, remember any hitting mm. anything, but um, the voluntaries with Arno, he said that I, I fell about 20 feet, hit a big boulder and then fell another like 10, 15 feet. And then started um, rolling down a scree field um, of just like broken rocks, you know, and stuff. And I rolled down that for about 150 feet uh, before I stopped. And so I had fallen all on my right side. I was very, very thankful and super fortunate. I did not hit my head. I did not hit my back. Um, so I, I, I. It could be way, way worse. Like I, I could be just dead at the bottom of that um, rock band, but um, I wasn't. And to have to lay there by yourself while Arnaud goes and gets help. I can't imagine what that must have been like. I don't really, I, re, I just, I, I don't really remember too much of it. Um, like I, I think I was in shock. I, I, I had no pain at that point. But I just, I had my eyes closed and I, I almost didn't want to acknowledge what had happened. Um, because I, I had a, a mindset of what I was supposed to be doing. I was 
going to be volunteering for another month. And then I was supposed to go on a safari in, in Uganda and in Tanzania and Rwanda. I had another like two months of traveling in Africa, which these have been my dream vacations to, to go visit. And, you know, the first thought of why I was like, well, now this is going to ruin my vacation. And then the second thought was, well, this may actually ruin my life. <laughs> um, like, I don't know if I'm going to actually make it. And so um, when I was just laying there, it was just, it, it was just almost like, I mean, like I said, I had my eyes closed in just darkness and just felt like an eternity, but, but it was probably relatively quick. I don't know. Um, I was in a lot of shock at that time. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Wow. Do you think you'll ever go back and just see back. the rock? You have. I've been back to, um, I've been back to, um, Uganda. Um, and I went, finally went on my African safari and got to see mountain gorillas. Um, that was the biggest thing I wanted to do was go see mountain gorillas. Um, so I've been to Uganda. I went to South Africa. I've been to, uh, Mozambique and I've also been to Madagascar since then. Um, so I've tried to get back to, um, get back to Africa. Um, I, I am planning on my five-year anniversary, which is being like two, three years to finish my trip. And I think this will be kind of like a full circle is go to Tanzania and Rwanda. Cause those were the two other places I was supposed to go. And it'll be re and I'm also going to try and go back to um, Kenya and actually see the farm. Cause it's still, they're still growing things there. They still send me pictures and of like all the help. And they're like, we're so happy. You're okay. And, you know, I, I've still kept in contact with a lot of the teachers out there and the people I was with. And I mean, they'll always remember me, the white crazy girl who fell off a cliff and almost died. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it, it will be really quite emotional and a happy experience to, to finally like complete that trip that I was supposed to go on. Yeah. I can only imagine. And then to go back to the, see the farm and see the rock band. No, that would be hard. Like, yeah. like actually seeing like the place that it all happened. Um, but yeah, um, ultimately I, I, I mean, COVID has kind of messed up some of my travel plans and then having children has messed up some of my travel plans, to be honest, too. But, uh, eventually, um, I'll get back there and in a couple of years and, um, I still travel a lot. So, which is nice. Oh, that's great. It, it seems like you've really sort of framed your life post fall in, in such a neat way and you've got such an appreciation for things and you set your life up in a, in a way that you can get what you wanted. Um, and you said something, pain makes the good times better. I'm wondering sort of as we sort of close out our conversation, you know, what do we say to people who haven't had a big fall or a catastrophic event um, to sort of help them I don't want to say open their eyes because that's totally not First, what I mean let them to know say. that they're very blessed. Yeah. Um, Good point. Because I think, I think what it is is just, for me, it's, it's easy to take things for granted when you haven't faced some sort of adversity. And that adversity could be anything. It could be a physical fall. It could be something mental. It could be anything. Um, so, I mean, I would basically let people know, like, hey, listen, you know, there's a lot of, bad things out there and you are so 
blessed to not have that experience, but learn from the people who have had that experience so that you don't have to go through that experience. Um, but to have the understanding of like how precious this life is and to just cherish every moment we have. And, you know, maybe they can learn from, you know, people who had had these adversities happen to them, you know, learn, you know, what they had to go through, what they learned so that maybe they don't have to go through it to have that same outcome. Cause I, I don't feel, I don't think you have to go through something crazy in your life to have the realization how, how amazing this life is and to, to, you know, grab hold on the things you want to do and, and, and cherish it. Um, but I think sometimes it's just, people need a wake up call and that wake up call could be you falling off a cliff or that wake up call could be your best friend falling off that cliff and telling you, Hey, you know, don't take this life for granted. And, you know, we all can, you know, learn from other people's experiences and, and learn, you know, just the value of, of how amazing this life is. Well said, well said. And, and on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open about it and for sharing your lessons in life and sharing how you're living now and your version of profound awesomeness. <laughs> it, was, it was great to hear. And with that, I just want to thank you one more time and appreciate the time you spent with us today. I really appreciate um, you listening to my story. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a crazy one. Well, we're glad you made it, and we're th thrilled to be able to share this story uh, with the world through the Profound Awesomeness podcast. Well, I mean, if the one thing I could say is you just, just love life and don't look back and have regrets. Go do the things you want to do. And for me, it was having a family and it took me falling off a cliff to realize that. And so, you know, you don't have to fall off a cliff, but just go do the things that make you happy and, and love life. Beautifully said. All right, Melinda, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Have a good day yourself. listening to this episode of Profound Awesomeness. We appreciate you being here. Make sure to listen to future episodes and please subscribe to Profound Awesomeness wherever you download your podcasts. 